Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're going to look at a good book that's a better story, the tale of Han van Meegeren's life as one of the great art world swindlers of the 20th century. The book, a work of nonfiction, is The Man Who Made Vermeers. The author is Jonathan Lopez, and it was published in 2008. And without further ado, the music. It's not every day that you can call a person who suffered from syphilis a lucky bastard, but Han van Meegeren, the syphilis sufferer in question, was emphatically lucky and emphatically a bastard. So, two for two. Well, two for two with a walk, if we're going to be strictly accurate, but we'll get to that a little later. The book begins with the author, Jonathan Lopez, picking up the trail of Han van Meegeren in the Netherlands in the 1920s. More specifically, in The Hague. Den Haag. Yes, that place. Like much, but not all, of the Western world, the Netherlands was enjoying the upswing of the post-World War I jazz age. And while for most of the Netherlands, enjoying the upswing probably meant an extra half ounce of butter on the brown bread, this was eminently not the case in the ritzy and carefree The Hague. There, they knew how to have a good time. Here's Lopez, nicely describing the scene. The Hague in those days was a supremely stylish venue for mischief and artifice of all types. In a nation whose great wealth and enduring prosperity derived from a flinty tradition of toil and thrift, The Hague stood out for its atmosphere of leisure and unapologetic opulence. It was the city of beautiful nonsense, in the words of a then-popular guidebook for the -the in-the-know visitors, a place to linger, to walk, to gossip, to flirt, to dance, and to do nothing for most of the time. Home to the royal family, the Dutch parliament, and a lively cultural scene, The Hague was not a commercial centre in the mould of Amsterdam or Rotterdam, but a playground for the elite, as well as for those with elitist pretensions. Men who could have stepped right out of the Jeeves and Wooster story strutted about town with monocles cocked under their eyebrows, spats strapped to their shoes, and walking sticks firmly in hand. Indeed, more sober-minded Dutchmen often rolled their eyes at the seemingly endless capacity of Hagenars to posture and pose, a set of behaviours neatly summarised by the term Hagzebluf. In time, a dessert by that name would become a popular treat for young children. Made of raspberry meringue, it looks extremely rich, but it's really just a puff of sweetly flavoured air. Hagzebluf, a good metaphor. Even at this early stage, Van Meegeren was not what he appeared to be. In fact, he was already living a double life. In one, he went by the name Han van Meegeren, and his biography seems simple, though not without incident. He was born into a Catholic family and, while teaching drafting classes at the Delft Technical University, impregnated a Protestant girl of higher standing. This got Van Meegeren into trouble with his father, who opposed any marriage to this girl on religious grounds, in opposition to which Van Meegeren responded by impregnating the girl a second time then quitting his job, the only steady income he'd ever generate, and leaving for that carefree capital, The Hague. Because Van Meegeren had a skilled hand, he found work relatively easily, mostly as a portrait painter for the high society. 
Lopez's book, which is full of pictures, which, I'll be honest, is nice, shows a number of von Megren's portraits, and while, as Lopez points out, they don't have the ethereal power of, of those by his English contemporary, John Singer Sargent, although, who does, Sargent, hello, von Megren's work is quite sharp. It has style, just not a style that is particularly distinguishable or noteworthy. It washes into the times. Having said that, von Megren did make name for himself, and this got him into the Kunstkring. Kunstkring? Yeah, that. A local group of artists, which solidified von Megren's place in the type of world where he quite evidently thought he belonged. That was the side of von Megren's life that was lived under the name von Megren. The other side of his life, he lived under the names Franz Halls, Peter de Hoch, Gerard Terboch, and, this one you'll recognize, Johannes Vermeer, all Dutch painters of the 17th century. Get your lute, get your checkerboard flags, get your tapestry. Van Megeren was part of a ring of forgers who operated out of The Hague, largely under the tutelage of a Theo van Weingarten. As Lopez points out, forgery is an old business, as old as painting itself. Julian Barnes once quoted Voltaire describing England as the land of fake Rubens, which is just chalk up another one for Voltaire. The 1920s, though, were especially good years for forgers. That's because money was circulating at a high volume, always a factor, and because the wealthy were buying up old masters at as great a rate as ever. This produced all kinds of schemes. There were straight-up forgeries, fraudulent restorations, that is, old canvases that were touched up and rebranded, and even multiple forged copies of old masters, which were sold by certain art dealers at the same time as the originals. Add to this the fact that at the time, the most sophisticated technology for detecting a forged oil painting was spilling alcohol over a section of the canvas. The oil of old paintings would harden over time and nothing would happen. The oil of new paintings was soft and, when in contact with alcohol, would dissolve. And you have a recipe for a seriously successful scam, especially when one adds to this the fact that the alcohol test, such as it was, had not yet made it to America. In short, the biggest market for old masters' forgeries, the New World, was also the most susceptible. As a result, what existed was a network of forgers, dealers, experts, and clients, each of whom was on the lookout against, as well as complicit with, the others. And the bottom line, you had a lot of fake art going around, some of it hanging in the walls of the most august homes, galleries, and museums in Europe and in the United States. Lopez gives us a good sense of how painting made its way from the Sumatra Strat in The Hague to the dining room of a, for instance, Andrew Mellon. First, you have a studio set up by a Theo van Weingarten. Then, you have someone like Han van Megeren paint the canvas. As Lopez points out, the forgery is a mix of the old and the new. The subject matter of the master, a young woman, for instance, who is embroidering or playing the lute, and something about that subject, the pose or style of clothing, that seems new or contemporary. The idea was that, in addition to being a masterpiece of its own time, the painting also spoke to the present, demonstrating how the artist was both a prophet and a contemporary. That's how you end up with a forgery like The Girl with the Blue Hat. A variation on The Girl with the Red Hat. It is sometimes known today as the Greta Garbo Vermeer, as the face of the sitter bears a striking resemblance to movie posters for Anna Christie and Wild Orchids, an interesting and apparently effective subliminal appeal to the eyes of the 1930s, since the anachronism blended in completely unnoticed with the prevailing tastes of the day. The great connoisseur Max Friedlander, who had succeeded Bode as director of the Kaiser Friedrich Museum, wholeheartedly accepted this picture as a Vermeer when it was brought in for attribution, reportedly calling it splendid.
Complete, it was then brought to the attention of the dealers, usually through a legitimate or sufficiently legitimate frontman. The frontman also had a story to accompany the canvas, something about a family in need, which at the same time could not be named because it wanted its privacy. Sometimes the frontman didn't know he was being used, but most of the time he must have had some inkling. With the painting shown around, the dealers then swooped in. They had their in-house experts look at it, then invited a select group of outside experts, usually from museums, to consult. Lopez points out that at this time, there were only three major experts who dominated the European market when it came to authenticating old masters, and each of these three had his own turf. For Dutch paintings of the Golden Age, it was Wilhelm von Bode. If the forgery passed muster with the in-house and outside experts, a certification was then made, and the dealer would buy the picture and sell it, usually very promptly, to a ready stable of customers for major, major amounts of cash. The proceeds would then be split among all parties. The dealers got their slice, the experts were paid for their services, the front men took anywhere between 10 and 15%, and the family that owned the painting, that would be Van Weingarten and Van Megren, collected a tidy sum too. Then came the Second World War. While it stayed neutral during the First World War, with its citizens profiting by trading with both sides, the Netherlands was quickly occupied. And while there was significant organized and individual resistance to the Germans, the Dutch did also contribute as high a number of SS volunteers per capita as any occupied nation, more than Germany. And Gerrit Mack, in his amazing and utterly worthwhile tome, In Europe, records how Dutch farmers aided the invading forces in the early days by giving directions. So you had for and against, and between them, you also had a number of people profiting as they did during the previous war, playing sides against one another. And this is exactly where von Megeren fit in. What I've given you is just the beginning of von Megeren's story, and because I encourage you to read this book, I don't want to say too much more. A few highlights, though, I can part with. There are innovations in testing old masters, which lead von Megeren to paint with Bakelite. Yes, the stuff your old rotary phone was made of. There is von Megeren's break from Theo von Weingarten and the Sumatra Strat gang, after which he becomes his own one-man shop. There is the seemingly endless line of good friends that von Megeren manipulates and whose trust he merrily abuses, which is for me one of the most fascinating aspects of his story. There is a sojourn in France and contacts made by von Megeren high and low across the Netherlands, Germany, England, North Africa, and America. There are amazing sums of cash. There is extreme hypocrisy. There's von Megeren making his previously latent interest in fascism explicit and public. There's von Megeren getting very rich while the country around him was atrophying, organizing parties and orgies while concentration, deportation, and starvation killed hundreds of thousands around him. There's the expert who called von Megeren's The Separate Emos, quote, the greatest Vermeer ever painted. And then there are the Germans. Hitler, for whom von Megeren inscribed a political pamphlet he once wrote, and, more specifically, Hermann Goering, who competed with Hitler for artworks and was determined to grab a Vermeer at exactly the time von Megeren was determined to provide one. If it sounds to you like I've given away the game, I haven't, not even by half. Barely scratching the surface would seem the appropriate cliché, but because I don't use clichés, I didn't just say that. Where I could go deeper is with regards to the wizard behind whose cloaks von Megeren hid, the master of Delft, Johannes Vermeer himself. Why was Vermeer the golden ticket in this new golden age? The answer lies in the fact that although Vermeer was known to have produced works over the course of at least three decades, 
he left behind a relatively small number of canvases, less than 40. In addition, there was also a fallow period in Vermeer's timeline, and it was in this fallow period that Van Meegeren worked. Lopez is at his most original and active when describing how Van Meegeren took full advantage of this empty space in Vermeer's career timeline. As Lopez puts it, what von Meegeren did was nothing less than rewrite the books of art history. What was previously considered an unproductive stage was turned by von Meegeren into Vermeer's so-called biblical period. It started with the supper at Imas, the image of a prematurely balding Christ breaking bread in the company of peasants in a room that looks very much like the one in which Vermeer did a lot of his other work, the one with the window in the top left corner letting in the gentle light. After the supper came the head of Christ, Isaac blessing Christ, the foot washing, because what is a biblical period without a foot washing, and Christ and the adulteress, the painting sold by von Meegeren via a middleman to Hermann Goering. What is amazing to a person looking back at all this is how obvious, how screamingly obvious it is that von Meegeren's paintings are fakes. While Lopez makes clear that the individual works were seen as differing in quality, and that the war was a propitious time to find eager and not necessarily clear-thinking buyers for these works, better to keep a possible Vermeer inside the Netherlands than to lose what might later be deemed a masterpiece to the Germans, the widespread acceptance of the authenticity of these works is, in retrospect, flabbergasting. Part of the allure of fakes was what Lopez said earlier about all forgeries, that they spoke to the present as much as the past. What's interesting here is that while the Greta Garbo Vermeer of the early 30s had at least as much in common with the contemporary movie posters as with the tronies, the young women that Vermeer painted in the 17th century, the biblical period Vermeers were inspired by an altogether different source. Lopez zeroes in on it this way. It's 1936, von Meegeren and his wife have visited Berlin for the Olympics, and they've also gone to see an exhibit of state-sanctioned artworks, the kind that, as Hitler put it, are, quote, expressions of the souls and ideals of the German community, unquote. That is, works that reflected the Volksgeist, literally the spirit of the nation. It was from these Volksgeist works that, Lopez argues, von Meegeren took his inspiration. Van Meegeren, who had always been a stylistically conservative artist, evidently developed a strong interest in Volksgeist themes and imagery over the years. Although this trend would not become readily apparent to the outside world until Van Meegeren revitalized his career in his own name during the war years, a latent folkish sentiment is already present in The Supper at Emaus, with its Germanic take on a simple rural repast. And the subtle affinity between Van Meegeren's biblical Vermeers and Nazi Volksgeist imagery did not end with The Supper at Emaus, but rather continued straight through to the end of the series. For instance, the last of the biblical Vermeers, Christ and the Adulteress, the one that Van Meegeren sold to Hermann Goering in 1943 seems to lift its composition almost literally from a well-known 1940 painting by the Nazi artist Hans Schachinger, depicting a solemn Austrian family sending the man of the house off to the front. Van Meegeren's youthful adulteress simply takes the place of the similarly posed old woman in Schachinger's painting. In a more alarming parallel, Christ stands in for the departing Nazi soldier who, in the eyes of the faithful, would probably have been seen as a sacrificial figure prepared to lay down his life for the greater good. By tapping into contemporary Volkskeist conventions, Van Meegeren was finally able to produce a group of biblical paintings unified in both sentiment and style, a goal that had eluded him when creating the religious scenes that he exhibited under his own name at the Beezing Show of 1922. 
Much like Van Meegeren's early high society Vermeer forgeries, the biblical Vermeers not only reflected the forger's own interests, but also exerted a strong subliminal attraction on viewers steeped in the visual culture of the day. The incorporation of Volksgeist themes into the so-called biblical Vermeers, as Lopez makes clear, is further confirmation of Van Meegeren's identification with fascism and Nazism. All this, however, falls to the side by the end of the war, when history is once again rewritten in von Megerin's favor. Shortly after the Germans are defeated, a Jewish resistance fighter, Joseph Piller, striving to make his name in the fledgling post-war Dutch police services, comes to arrest the forger for his wartime dealings. I won't say too much about this fantastical ending, except that the chief persecutor, Piller, is eventually turned into the greatest defender of the misunderstood von Megeren, who once again gets a frontman, in this case Pillar, to do his bidding. The ensuing trial of von Megeren is more celebration than prosecution, and before any punishment can be levied against him, he goes and dies. That's the four-pitch walk. It took until the 1980s for the scum surrounding Han von Megeren to rise to the surface. And even then, Pillar, the man who arrested him, prefers, as do many of his countrymen, to see Han van Megeren as he saw himself, rather than to accurately recall what he did. In reflecting on this book, I think of Joshua Nelman's Hot Art, which is a solid primer on the theft, fraudulence, and related machinations that seem to underwrite the official and unofficial art trade, of the recently revealed story of the 1,500 canvases discovered, in quotes, in a Munich apartment, the product of a colossal wartime theft that had, in part, toured American museums after the war. I think of how German authorities sat on this for two years and are still delaying release of the most basic information regarding this collection. I think of the similarly recent case of Klimt's enormous Beethoven frieze, which by all appearances was wrangled from the possession of the frieze's owners after the war by the Austrian government. I think of the many storylines that surrounded the discovery of a Leonardo, which included not a forger per se, but a fraudulent art authenticator. I think of the loopy but very informative Who the Fuck is Jackson Pollock documentary, and of William Boyd's often amazing 2002 novel, Any Human Heart, where a character close to the narrator runs galleries in Paris and New York and makes opaque dealings that remind one very much of the announced £50 million sale of Damien Hirst's diamond-encrusted skull in 2007. All of which starts me on the question of why and how we value art, both in abstract and literal terms. I guess it's a kind of fascination with the fact that in this world, artifice follows artifice, and there are so many layers to the life of a great painting. I've said again and again, though, that this is only the beginning of the story, and we'll have to leave continuation to another time. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Next up will be a review of the slender novel, The Blue Fox, by the Icelandic author Sean. In the meantime, send me notes, nasty and nice, either via Twitter, at burningbookspod, and or via email. The address is burningbookspod at gmail.com. My heel erg bedankt to Robert Jan van Pelt for the authentically inscrutable Dutch accent, to Hakan Ozgan for the music. Dank u wel. And as always, go Jays.
Hi, this is John Eggs. And this is Patrice Eggs. You're listening to Radio Latopia, and we'd love it if you check out our book, The Boss, uh, from the DFC Library. Published by David Fickling Books.